This is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. And the great fortune of gentrification is an outcome of the great crime of neoliberalism, a crime that destabilizes communities, destroying neighborhoods and displacing its residents into worse and worse housing and living conditions with fewer resources that tear apart much needed safety nets for the marginalized, often people of color who need them most, or so argues today's guest. Neoliberalism and the gentrification it ushers in undermines democracy and the ability for people to make the choices that are best for them, relegating such power to outsiders, often self-described experts from nonprofits or local institutions like universities and hospitals, decide what's best for the poor, despite not having a clue as to what the poor really need. But there are alternatives that can bring stability. There are other options that it can improve the lives of the poor with greater political empowerment. There are different ways that communities can address their distressed economies and dilapidated environments, often made toxic by the worst of capitalist practices that put profits before people, the value that value money more than they value humanity. In a few minutes, we'll speak with attorney and legal scholar Joseph Margulies, who is author of Thanks for Everything, Now Get Out, Can We Restore Neighborhoods Without Destroying Them? Joseph is professor of law and government at Cornell University. He was counsel of record in the 2004 case Rasul v. Bush, involving detentions at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Station, and in the 2008 case Jurin v. Omar, and Munaf versus Jurin involving detentions at Camp Cropper in Iraq. His previous books include Guantanamo and the Abuse of Presidential Power and What Changed When Everything Changed 9-11 in the Making of National Identity. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show, live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, what's new by you? Well... I have finished my training at the farmer's market, so I get to work unsupervised now. Oh, really? So yeah. how's, how's that going to go? Is that going to go well, or are you kind uh, of nervous? We'll see. I mean, it's just, I guess, more work, because I'm going to be alone, but um, more freedom, I guess, uh, selling mushrooms at the market, and I don't know. Yeah, I'm a little nervous. Just but. to make sure these are legal types of mushrooms, correct? Yes, yes, unless and, you talk to the right people. <laughs> <laughs> and so where, what's the farmer's market you work at? Uh, I'm at Andersonville and also the Logan Square Market. Um, and But the mar- the mushrooms go all over the city. And so they are, oh, so do you represent, are you uh, working for one farmer then? Are you? Is that what you do and you yeah. go to two different places? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, they have a mushroom farm in Wisconsin and... Oh, no kidding. That's crazy. So uh, and th- so both the markets are open, both the Andersonville and Logan uh, Square markets are already open? Yeah, like all of the city markets should be open now. And uh, we're up here on the north, well, the farther north side, So, because uh, Logan Square is also on the north side. But uh, if people wanted to see you over at the Andersonville market, when is it open? It's open on Wednesdays from 3 to 7. Oh, so. So it's an afternoon market, one of the only ones. So today. Yep. Yeah, it's today. And what about the one in Logan Square? That one's Sunday uh, from 9 to 3 on, yeah, Sunday. Which of the two is bigger? Logan Square. Oh, really? Yeah, definitely, yeah. 
So here's what's new by me, which is what's new by you, Lindsay, and new by everyone who works here on the show and new to all of our listeners. We got an email from Scott Price who writes, I am the programming director at CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. We are a campus and community radio station. I'm interested in having This Is Hell on CKUW. In terms of our schedule, we could fit in a one-hour abbreviated version of your show. Could you send me an example of one of those episodes? Regards, Scott Price, Program Director, CKUW 95.9 FM, which means This Is Hell will soon be expanding our listenership to the greater Winnipeg metropolitan area. CKUW is the radio station of the University of Winnipeg and has been broadcasting for 60 years inclusively, having started in 1963. This means that the This Is Hell radio empire, which already reaches beyond Chicago to include Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, and recently started streaming on the UK-based online radio station Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com, will now cross the border into Canada. If you would like to hear This Is Hell on your local radio station, that is if you still have a local radio station or or radio for that matter, please either contact your favorite local non-commercial community station and tell them you want to hear This Is Hell in your area. Or just email me at chuck at thisishell.com and tell us where you would like to hear our show. We'll see what we can do. So thanks to Scott and all the good people at CKUW, the University of Winnipeg, and all our Winnipegger listeners in the Gateway to the West, although I bet that term, the Gateway to the West, to describe Winnipeg, probably doesn't go over that well with First Canadians. Uh, Lindsay, with all my excitement about being on air in Winnipeg, I've completely forgotten that what's this week's question from hell. Please remind us, Lindy, what, Lindsay, what is this week's question from hell? That's a good question. I'm still trying to find it on the Facebook page. What day is it today? It's the first of June. See, it's always difficult to figure out now when we have these weird weeks of Memorial Day uh, where we lost a day and so everything kind of got Here it shifted. Is. So okay. what is this week's question? I'm just question not very good at using Facebook, honestly, but this week's question Well, from good hell. for you, by the way. <laughs> I'm much better at Instagram. Uh, <laughs> this week's question from hell is, the right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? The right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice or their choice, of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering or the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive, featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. We do not accept any grants. We don't have enough money. We don't profit enough to be a not-for-profit. And we do not have any commercial sponsors, and we want to keep it that way. So without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or again, you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin 
and the moment of truth. Lindsay will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Joseph on the potential of neighborhood trusts on combating not only gentrification but neoliberalism as it is imposed on poor residents everywhere. So again, email us, message us via Facebook, tweet at us on Twitter with your guests and uh, topic suggestions, or tell us anything you'd like to share on the show, and we will likely read it on air as we read Scott's email inviting us on CKUWFM in Winnipeg. Nathan B. sent an email to chuckatthisishell.com writing, Hey Chuck, glad to hear you're back and feeling better, relatively. I just listened to your interview with Dominic Boyer about degrowth, and I was happy to hear another voice speaking about degrowth on your show. And, of course, it was great to hear you back on This Is Hell. I have a guest suggestion that I have suggested previously, but maybe it got lost in the email ether or possibly, Nathan, I was hospitalized and somehow just missed that because I was freaking hospitalized. The author is Susan Paulson, who you have had on the show previously talking about the case for degrowth. But this time I wanted to suggest you have her on to talk about the role of strategy in degrowth. This month, a collected volume on degrowth and strategy, how to achieve social ecological transformation, will be released, which I'm an editor of, and Susan is one of 30 contributing authors. You can read more about the book at degrowthstrategy.org. I think it would be great to have someone on your show to speak about the tough questions of how to realize a degrowth transformation alongside the interviews you have already had about what degrowth means and is all about. Thank you for your ongoing work and hope your health continues to improve. Best, Nathan. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, Susan was on the show back in November of 2020 uh, when she and Giorgos Kalas uh, discussed the book they co-authored with Giacomo Dalisa and Federico De Maria, The Case for Degrowth. You can hear that interview uh, by searching, uh, by going to thisishell.com and searching on the last name Paulson. That's P-A-U-L-S-O-N. Nathan, Susan, and Giorg—sorry, uh, uh, Susan and Giorgos were uh, fantastic on the show, and we would love to have her back on. So expect an email from us, Nathan, in the very near future, so we can continue our conversation on degrowth. What's uh, funny, I guess, is when I searched on degrowth, one of the first things that popped up was an article on why economists who support capitalism and neoliberalism and their capitalist supporters were not afraid of degrowth, which made me think that in reality, they are very afraid of the concept of degrowth. We also received an email from an artist inquiring about the upcoming This Is Art Art Show, which opens during the celebration of Carrie's Lounge and it's 50 years in business. The bar downstairs from us, that's happening on Saturday, July 23rd, and uh, This Is Art is going to be closing during the This Is Hell 26th anniversary and listener appreciation party happening on Saturday, September 17th, the final Saturday of summer on uh, summer's final weekend. Pangea writes, Hi Chuck, first time caller, longtime fan. I really admire the work you do and think your podcast has the best interview questions I've ever heard. I listen to it a lot when I'm in my studio. I'm mostly an artist and fashion designer. Recently, I've gotten back into making books and made an upcycled poetry zine out of a Peggy Noonan book with my partner. I wanted to submit this work to your art show. I also thought you might genuinely enjoy it and thought this would be a nice way to thank you for all I've learned from This Is Hell. I hope this work demonstrates the joy of playing with negative space, living as we do in a negative 
negative space. I'll uh, send a printed copy next week, but in the meantime, I uploaded the spreads to my site, Pangea, K-A-L-I-V-I-R-G-A dot com. I look forward to your full-time return to the show and wish you all the best in your recovery from being so sick. Sincerely, Pangea Kali Verja, fiber artist, designer, stylist, creative director. So thanks, Pangea. Fantastic first name, by the way. Your work is outstanding, and I believe the curator of our show has already contacted you about your availability and how we can get our hands on your work. For those of you who do not know or do not remember who Peggy Noonan is, well, good for you, but she's a horrible person who was a speechwriter for President Ronald Reagan. After she left the administration, she became a even worse right-wing commentator who fanned the flames of today's far right. You know, just like President Reagan did. We'll have more of your feedback following our conversation with Joseph on Neighborhood Trusts. We'll also have your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, again, the right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? The right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people, this is hell under neoliberalism. It seems the only way you can reclaim a community devastated by the worst aspects of 20th and 21st century capitalism is through gentrification. There seems to be no alternative to a process that leads to skyrocketing rents and home prices that tears apart neighborhoods, leaving the community in shreds, displacing residents and forcing them to move elsewhere, no matter how much they have contributed to their neighborhood's improvement. But in fact, there are alternatives, despite what supporters of neoliberalism would lead you to believe. Here to help us consider those alternatives, attorney and legal scholar Joseph Margulies is author of Thanks for Everything, Now Get Out, Can We Restore Neighborhoods Without Destroying Them? Welcome to This Is Hell, Joseph. Thank you. Thanks very much. You know, I used to live in Chicago, and it's just great to hear you guys talking about Chicago again and to hear Lindsay talking about where the farmers markets are and the Andersonville and Logan Square. I uh, I miss it very much, and it's great to be on the air with you guys. Where were you living when you were here in Chicago? I, I lived in a number of different places. I went to law school there, and so uh, uh lived down near Northwestern at various times. And then I taught at the University of Chicago. So I was on the South side. And then I uh, lived up in the Boys Town area for a while and then Rogers Park. And so various places on the South and North side. Yeah. So we're uh, broadcast just uh, West of Rogers Park. We're over in the West Ridge neighborhood. Let me ask you just real quick about your background in law. Uh, Your previous books, like I was saying before, include Guantanamo and the abuse of presidential power. What changed when everything changed? 9-11 and the making of national identity. And uh, you uh, were involved in cases involving uh, what was happening at the Guantanamo Naval Station and detentions at Camp Cropper in Iraq. How did that background lead you to be writing and studying about community land trusts, neighborhood land trusts, and gentrification? Uh, you know, it's a lately it occurs to me what a long, strange trip it's been. Um, I, uh, you know, the, the post 9-11 stuff was really the departure for me. That's, that's what I, to the extent that I'm known for anything, it's that work, the um, the stuff you mentioned and, and a case that came out just this term involving a guy who was tortured in a CIA black site, who's also a client of mine. Um, 
But before all that happened, I have been involved in, I, I, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. Um, and I have worked on behalf of folks who have been caught up in the various iterations of the war on crime. Uh, and that has always led me to, well, in fact, you know, before I lived in Chicago, I lived in Minneapolis and I lived very, very near to where George Floyd, uh, I lived and worked very near where George Floyd was killed. I know that, that block really well. Um, and I was working on a book on uh, police reform, so-called, um, and it led me to this neighborhood in Providence, Rhode Island, where everybody said, oh, you got to go study the police in Providence. Boy, you wouldn't believe the change that's taken place there. Um, as, a, as, as, as part of an inquiry into a solution into the problem of policing. Um, and when I went there, what I discovered is that policing was, could not be separated from larger questions about neighborhood well-being. Um, and, I, and in studying really closely this one neighborhood, which is about the size of a census tract, uh, it's about the size of Andersonville, um, uh, I realized the sort of the moral dilemma at the core of the book, which is here was a neighborhood that has been badly, badly beaten up. I mean, it's all the worst things about uh, neighborhood decline that we all understand from the late 20th, early 21st century, that through the dint of hard work on the part of neighborhood residents uh, and their allies really were pulling themselves out of the mire, uh, making themselves into a viable, successful, exciting neighborhood again. And so I thought I was going to write this success story. You see, it can work. But then when you look at it closely, what's happening in the last decade, 15 years or so, is they have set themselves up for the gentrification that is creeping over the river and pushing folks out, just beginning to push folks out. So that was really the where the idea came from. I just is that really the best that we can do, right? I mean, you know, people a new group of folks move in and say, wow, this is great. Thanks for everything. Now get the hell out of here. I just, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. So that's what the, that became the book, the and, story of this transformation. And you start by writing Onlyville. Uh, Onlyville is a uh, neighborhood on the west side of Providence, Rhode Island. And you write that, of course, it went through this uh, advanced deterioration, heavily deteriorated and dilapidated area in 1978. 20 years later, when downtown Providence was becoming what the New York Times called a national model for how to make a uh, rundown old city hot again. Olneyville was uh, suffering through stubbornly high levels of crime, unemployment, and despair. Today, people reach for very different words to describe the neighborhood. Hip, trendy, chic. Now, those are words that we often hear associated with gentrification uh, caused by uh, uh, what people like past guest Rebecca Solnit described in her book, Hollow City, as urban bohemian pioneers that eventually priced longtime residents out of communities. So uh, was Olneyville, was that gentrified? And how, more importantly, how difficult is it to reclaim a neighborhood from advanced deterioration and it being heavily deteriorated and dilapidated without gentrification and the potential risk of displacement? Um, so, so that's the conclusion of the book. I, I reluctantly came to the conclusion that 
in answer to the question, how difficult is it? I don't think it can be done. I think it is possible to transform badly distressed neighborhoods, even in a new neoliberal age. We have the tools to do it, and only Bill was doing it. We can, we can fix, I don't like the word fix, but, but we can transform them uh, and make them safe and viable and exciting again. But what we can't do, given the tools that neoliberalism has, has bequeathed to us, is protect them. That's the problem. The, the expertise exists. And this is where my book differs from a lot of the books about gentrification. I mean, everybody knows what happens with gentrification. They get that. The expertise exists to transform these neighborhoods in ways that are um, that, that retain the affordability for folks of limited means. That we can do if we have the, I mean, it, it's, it's very hard. And it only works if all the stars align. Uh, but it was working in Olneyville. What they can't do, however, is save themselves from their own success. That's the real moral tragedy. That's fascinating. They become too attractive, in other words. Yeah, and as, as you point out, between 2000 and 2015, average rents in Olneyville climbed over 54%, more than twice the citywide a- average of uh, Providence. Over roughly the same period, of the number of people in the neighborhood who had attended college nearly doubled, and the number with a college or advanced degree nearly tripled. From 2009 to 2018, the number of non-Hispanic white residents in Olneyville increased nearly 60%, and the Gini uh, Inequality Index, a standard measure of in- income inequality, uh, increased more than 10%. In short, Olneyville has become whiter, significantly more unequal, and substantially more expensive, and gentrification now imperils the Latinx community that has called Olneyville home since the 1990s. So is that stage of gentrification, is that necessary not only for the redevelopment of a neighborhood? Are private investors in high-priced properties necessary to turn a community in in its beginning stages of redevelopment, at least in its in, uh, beginning stages of redevelopment, does it need that uh, unfortunate uh, spark of gentrification? No, no. That's that's the core. That's the core realization. These neighborhoods can be restored, repaired, um, uh, made fabulous, and Olneyville. You know, it's this gentrification is at the earliest stage, right? There's a lot of neighborhoods all over the country that are just too far gone. And they just, they just no, are no longer recognizable as the neighborhoods they used to be. All the folks who lived there for generations are, have been pushed out. Um, that's just still in the beginning stages in Olneyville. Accelerating, but it's early. And my book is really written for the Olneyvilles and other neighborhoods that haven't changed yet. And the and the the moral lesson is, look, you can restore this neighborhood, and you can, if you use a different set of tools, uh, prevent the 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 gentrification that your success will summon. Right? I mean, it's the it's the siren in the sky that just summons these newcomers. You can prevent that if you wield a new set of tools, and that's what that's what the book is about. And you also point out that America's current approach uh, to neighborhood well-being can transform places like Olneyville, but cannot protect them. 
But how, right. how can a neighborhood protect itself from the massive power of neoliberalism when that comes to the combination of not only you know, private equity, private investors, people who are uh, putting money into campaign funds, and the power of a government that gets their power from those investors? How can that protection happen when there's so much within neoliberalism that's leveraged against them? You're right. There is a great deal leveraged against them, and I, and I don't say it's easy. Neighborhoods really, and what I mean is the folks who are longtime residents who really care about their neighborhoods have to come together. But the problem with the current approach, when you really distill it down, and it took me a long time to really distill down what's wrong with the current approach, um, is that A, it empowers the wrong people, and B, it cannot take enough property out of the speculative market, right? So there's always too much property available for um, speculators or, or for just folks who want to come in and who can pay it top dollar and um, drive up uh, rents. So what you need is a solution that addresses those two problems, right? You got to empower the right folks and you got to take more property of all sorts, not just um, where folks live, but where folks work and where folks produce things. Uh, all the all the um, uh, space that exists in a distressed neighborhood, and take it out of the reach of the market. And the idea that I eventually came up with for that is is what I call a, that would achieve that is is a, a neighborhood trust, which I describe in the book, and I described it in an article that I wrote before the book came out. And there, are, and it's starting to happen. There are places that are starting to implement the idea of the neighborhood trust. And it really is about this transfer of power from, um, you know, by and large, very well-intended. In most cities, they're very well-intended, this ocean of um, nonprofit organizations that are generally speaking, uh, community development corporations staffed by, uh, led by, the board of directors are all um, well-intended outsiders, in many cases, white, um, well-educated, they mean well, but they are not of the community. They, do, they are not the neighborhood. And it's the folks, in, and they ought not be making the decisions for what the neighborhood needs. The folks in the neighborhood ought to make those decisions. And you need to transfer the power, literally, uh, not just figuratively, but literally to uh, what I call a neighborhood trust, where you know the neighborhood democratically selects its own leaders and they administer the money that comes into uh, uh, a neighborhood. Um, and they hold it in trust for low-income residents. Uh, and they grow that pile of money through various sources. Uh, and use that money to decommodify as much property as they possibly can, especially when rents are still low. Because if you wait, then that property is just going to be too expensive and they won't be able to do it. Uh, but you're transferring financial and political and social power to the folks who need to be protected. I and mean, that's what's radical about the book. It's the idea, well, let's for the first time in American history, let's empower the poor rather than empowering other folks who ostensibly act on the poor's behalf. Let's, let's just empower the poor and let them control their fate. Let's just see what happens. 
And you, as you were pointing out, you know, these organizations, whether they're foundations, uh, nonprofits, uh, philanthropies, uh, local universities and hospitals, public sector funding, and uh, like I was saying, nonprofit, and you were saying nonprofit organizations, uh, they do have this kind of uh, intense power and influence over these communities that leads to, that can often lead to, whether well-intended, you know, even though it's well-intended, can lead to gentrification. So in your opinion, why don't these organizations work more closely with the existing community? Why do they have so much influence and yet have so little contact with the existing community? Well, I think it's, I think it, first of all, there are hundreds of thousands of these organizations all over the country. And there are a zillion of them in Chicago, for instance. And I have friends who are in some of those organizations. And some of them are exceedingly close to the uh, folks that they serve. And so I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. Um, it is just, for instance, in Olneyville and empirically the case around the country that there is a space, there is a distance between um, the nonprofit sector, the, the, the uh, management and the staff and the, and the board of the nonprofit sector and the neighborhoods they serve. I, I prefer the word neighborhood to community that they serve. And part of that is because, you know, pay scales are low. Um, and so you need people who have um, other sources of income uh, to be able to work there. Uh, so generally speaking, the nonprofit sector is um, uh, overrepresented by women. Um, and in a place like Olneyville, you have um, a, an overrepresentation of um, single mothers. And they just can't, and if they have the possibility, for instance, of working in a government sector job, which pays them better uh, wages and benefits um, and a more stable income uh, versus uh, a nonprofit that uh, is lower funded, um, it's, a, it's just the sensible thing for them to do is to, is to not work in the nonprofit. So it's hard for them to, anyway, you can see where that goes. Another problem that happened, has happened with the nonprofits is that as a result of neoliberalism and the, you know, the war against government, um, nonprofits uh, have taken the place of government service. They provide government service. And so they become very technocratic uh, and highly skilled at delivering municipal services. And so they want to hire people with a particular education level and a particular skill level. Well, you know, sometimes you don't have that in, in neighborhoods. So as a consequence, they always feel that they need to hire a, 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 a person that may not be well represented in the neighborhood. And this gradually over time, even with the best of intentions, even when they say, look, we're doing this for the neighborhood, we're doing this for you, estranges them. They become estranged from the neighborhood they are intended to serve. And, uh, you know, and then they're also not accountable to them. They're accountable to the board, not to neighborhood residents, right? No neighborhood residents ever vote for who's on the staff of the leading nonprofits, right? Um, and, uh, you know, this just leads over time. There's no villains. Nobody's being villainous. The villain is, is an institution and a, and, a, and a philosophy like neoliberalism, but not any individual actor. So why can uh, why can uh, nonprofits uh, why can't they provide the services that you believe that government can? How much in, in this in this case in this situation? 
how misleading is a term like nonprofit when it comes to what the eventual outcome is of their work? Oh, that's really interesting. Wow. How, how, um, you know, they are nonprofit. It's true. But what they set up is the eventual control of the profit sector. That is a really good way to put it. And I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but, but that is what it leads to unless you, and the, and the, the, the problem is the, the arrangement we currently have is we, these organizations are not nearly funded enough to um, take sufficient property out of the, the um, speculative sector. There's not, you know, in Chicago and everywhere else, the waiting list for things like um, Section 8 homes is in the years, in years, right? Well, you know, we know how we have the skills to build genuinely affordable housing, genuinely and sustainably affordable housing. It's, it's you know, that's not rocket science. We can do that. We just opt not to. Why? Well, because in this country, housing is not a right. Housing is not a right. Uh, it's something you purchase on the speculative market. And we may help you a little bit, but we don't help you very much. And we don't help the neediest among us. The neediest among us simply are not housed. Uh, they, ironically, are the ones who have to fight out in the market. Well, that's why we have a problem of homelessness. We simply don't make a commitment to it. We don't, we don't create sustainably affordable space for people to live, to work, to play. We can do it and we just opt not to. And the nonprofit world, the community development world is funded just enough to do, to, to transform a place like Olneyville and to make it exciting again, but can't protect it. And it's happening in Chicago too. They can't protect it. They can't protect it over the long term because there isn't a sufficient commitment. And the reason there isn't a sufficient commitment is because the poor are not empowered. That's fundamentally the reason. You mentioned at one point in your writing uh, community chess, which people probably don't even remember what they were or never heard of them, or the, the only interaction they've ever had with it is uh, playing Monopoly. Or if they, right, the Monopoly <laughs> game. Right, even if they remember playing the Monopoly game. What to you, what explains that change from a concept like a community chess that gives back to the community, that leads to stability within a community, uh, to what we see today with gentrification under neoliberalism? What explains that shift and maybe the loss of our memory about uh, communities, this sustainable uh, uh, scenarios and uh, practices like a community chess? Well, you know, I think that fundamentally what goes hand in hand with neoliberalism is the cult of individualism. Um, and individualism is the death of community welfare. Uh, the, we, we saw a brief, brief flowering uh, return of the idea of community welfare where people look after each other um, in the early weeks and months of the pandemic. Um, and I actually you know, foolishly held out hope that it might rekindle this the commitment to um, the neighborhood taking care of itself. Um, uh, but of course, it very quickly came under attack and uh, we've seen the attack in the sort of um, uh, 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 fury against um, continued supports for rent support and, and wage support uh, in the post-pandemic 
or pandemic world. But the, but 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 I but I think that what goes hand in glove with neoliberalism is individualism. That is the idea that it's it's not the government's fault. There's no systemic fault. There's no structural fault in society. If you're living in a crappy neighborhood, if you have a crappy dead end job, if you have a job that doesn't have benefits and doesn't have it isn't secure and you have to struggle in the gig economy well that's on you brother that's on you that's because you don't have enough gumption and you don't have enough grit um uh and if you want to get to a better neighborhood and get to a better get your kids to a better school well you just got to grab onto those bootstraps and pull man pull uh and you know that philosophy is inimical to the idea of community well-being, right? That we are all in this together and that only collectively can we uh, solve the problems that beset, and they really do beset modern society. Um, and the only way that happens, that communal outlook, which is the outlook that I, it's, I, you know, I find myself a lonely voice in this, is through um, shared ownership, shared ownership of resources in trust, that the, so that they are held legally protected from, the, uh, from capitalist exploitation, because that's what it'll do. What capitalism does, is it looks for, it looks to grow. What capitalism always wants to do is get bigger. Money wants to get bigger, money under a capitalist scheme. Uh, and so it looks to places where it can get bigger. Where can I get bigger? Well, I get bigger over there. It means that I push that guy out, but I get bigger. And that's what I'm going to do. Well, you need to resist that or else those guys will get pushed out. We are speaking with Joseph Margulies, author of Thanks for Everything. Now get out. Can we restore neighborhoods without destroying them? That phrase, uh, lifting yourself up by your bootstraps, I just love if you think about it for a few seconds, how it's an impossibility. Obviously. It's an impossibility. And no one, in fact, does it. Everybody who says, hey, man, I'm my own man. I made my own man. Get out. Just get out. Right. That's and you had a village behind you that you don't even want to recognize. Right. Self, self-made millionaires, self-made billionaires. Oh, those are come all, on, exa- come on. Exactly. So why? What, in your opinion, why do we not recognize neoliberalism's and individualism's destabilizing uh, impact on neighborhoods? Why? Um, you know, neoliberalism's really seductive. Um, it says there are no problems but self-help, right? It's, that's a really seductive model. Um, and because it goes hand in glove with the demonization of government, right? And so there's this, you know, it starts, doesn't start with, but, but is popularized by Reagan's um, quip, uh, you know, the six most dangerous words in the American language, or I'm from the government and I'm here to help, or the, you know, the eight words, 10 words, whatever it is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. The idea of the government providing a public service became, uh, you know, uh, like one of George Carlin's things that you're not allowed to say. Um, well, that's just, you know, and, and so if you demonize government that way, well, then, what happens? Well, think about what happens. It allows you to inject yourself 
um, in a class and race way against folks who receive certain kinds of benefits, right? And so that contributes to the other piece of, of right-wing dominance, which is um, uh, the, the anti-blackness and uh, anti-brownness that goes on in this country. Because uh, in cities, folks take advantage of certain, um, uh, what remains of a safety net. Well, so then you, you racialize that. Right. Well, you know, out in, in, in middle America, they take advantage of different kinds of benefits, but they all get benefits. They just want to demonize the kind of benefits that they don't get. And then, then, then they call it, you know, welfare. And they say, well, you're not working hard enough. So it's, it, it seduces folks. The individualism of, of neoliberalism seduces folks into thinking that they are virtuous. And that other people who, who need help that they don't need are lazy and slothful. And it always feels good to say that you are virtuous and strong and they are lazy and weak. That's a, that's a classic uh, political step to divide folks who ought to have the same class interest and separate them by race and ethnicity. You write at one point about how you would like to see more government funding of public housing. The argument amongst uh, in, within neoliberalism is that government is far more ineffective, inefficient, and far more costly uh, than the private sector would be in addressing whatever the issue is or uh, the a public a private public partnership when it comes to addressing uh, the needs of the people. Why do you? Is there any evidence that suggests that uh, these public private partnerships or uh, this kind of nonprofits that have replaced the government are any more or less efficient, effective at providing housing for the poor? Um, no, there's not a lot of good evidence for it. But whether you do it by the way, by way of pure government funding or public private partnerships, you can do them. You, we, we can do them. We just do them on an extremely small scale now. We no longer build public housing. That just, you know, we haven't built, built public housing for decades. Um, uh, and in fact, we're tearing down uh, what is left of public housing. And, and a lot of public housing in places like Chicago, like the Robert Taylor Homes and Cabrini Green Homes, they were awful because they were poorly designed and they, and they you know, hypercrowding and segregated and, and so on. And so a lot of those, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to replace those with better things. But whether you replace them with public housing that's better done or public-private partnerships build them is less important than that you do it, that you create it and you make it in a way that is sustainably affordable and genuinely affordable, right? Um, so the housing tax credits that are the major source of, of, of funding for what's called, quote, affordable housing in the United States today are built so that they are not affordable to the neediest among us. They're pegged at folks who have income at about 50 or 60% of the area rate, uh, the, the, the median rate that folks earn in that area. So if you're in a, there are a lot of places, well, for instance, in Olneyville, they, they can build that kind of housing, but the poorest folks in Olneyville can't afford to live there because they don't earn 50%. That's what the rent will be, 50% of the area median income. They don't come anywhere near that. Uh, a third of the people in Olneyville get by on $10,000. This is for a household, $10,000 or less per year. 
So affordable actually ends up attracting folks who are gentrifiers because relative to longtime residents, they, they're, they're much better off. So we know how to make it. We just create it in a way that is not sustainable for the poorest. And, and that's just a choice. That's just a policy choice. Right. That's a big and, thing. And a morally bankrupt one at that. That's a big thing that people have to realize that these are choices that are being made. Uh, absolutely. And- absolutely. This doesn't just sort of fall out of the sky and there's no agency involved. And because there's agency, it can be different. That's the thing. You know, you don't want to just throw up your hands and say, oh, you know, shucks, eh, nothing we can do about it. Oh, we live in the United States. It's a screwed up country. Nothing can be done. That's not true. Or that, or, or, or that it's just something nebulous like market factors that re- yeah, cause all of right. this. No, that's ridiculous. No, we create this. We choose this. We choose this. And you can choose differently. And we should. And you, it's, it's morally obscene. And you point out that in Olneyville, they've been uh, using this community land trust. And then you write, uh, what if they did something different called the Olneyville Na- Neighborhood Trust? All the resources that flow in the neighborhood, as you were pointing out earlier, from philanthropies, fund- foundations, community banks, and governments, which now go to nonprofits, would instead pass into and be administered by the trust. The Neighborhood Trust would own and control these assets and would have a mandate to address the interconnected challenges that confront the neighborhood, but in a way that preserved sustainable affordability. But under neoliberalism, how interested would philanthropies, foundations, community banks, and governments be in investing in neighborhood trusts? Yeah, I mean, neoliberalism is not interested in this solution at all. But there, there is a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of money floating out around in the form of impact investment and philanthropies that are interested in, in other solutions and are looking for ways to say, look, we recognize that um, making the neighborhood better does not necessarily make it um, uh, more secure. Um, and, and as I said, you know, the, the places that are starting to implement the idea of the neighborhood trust and the most advanced model of it is happening in West Philadelphia, uh, which is a, a really, really rough area called Kensington. Um, used to be the opium capital of the, of the East Coast. Um, they are implementing this, this neighborhood trust model and really trying to empower, to do, to do the two things that need to be done, which is take a hell of a lot of property out of the market soon before it, it becomes too expensive and empower the local residents. And they are trying to do this by funding through um, impact investors. Uh, as well as the, you know, the, the foundations and the and the, the, the philanthropies that have all uh, funded the the raft of nonprofits, they're going beyond that in, in in just the way that I think they should. I also think that you know it should it should be funded by government, but in the in, in the immediate term, that's not happening, and these neighborhoods don't have the time to wait. Um, so you know, and it's called the Kensington Neighborhood Trust, uh, and it's really exciting. It's really they're doing good stuff there. I think that's where Sherry Honkala is doing work, correct? Don't I can't I don't recognize the name, uh, but May. Yeah. May. Uh, but so uh, uh, you call for neighborhood trust, which you see as more democratic. Is a lack of democracy the driving force behind the inequality of gentrification and its displacing of residents? Is gentrification, in your opinion, the outcome of more than anything a lack of democracy? Wow, that's a great way to put it. I like that a lot. What I would say that 
I don't want to quibble about the meaning of the word democracy, but what it is really is a lack of power on the part of the poor, right? So if democracy is equivalent to power, uh, then, then yes, I agree with you. Um, what we've seen in this country forever, since the memory of man runneth not, is that the vote, which is the usual indicia of democracy, is not enough to achieve power. Uh, and that power requires more than the vote. Uh, power requires organizing, power requires, right? I mean, uh, we're, 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 we're seeing this on a lot of levels. That doesn't mean that people aren't disenfranchised, right? And, 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 the, and the campaign to re-enfranchise folks who are, you know, who get caught up in the criminal justice system, for instance, uh, and who lose their right to vote is exceedingly important, but it's, it's not enough. Uh, and, and, the, and the depredations of ne neoliberalism are not simply a democratic failure, they're a power failure. Missed my button. So, uh, but um, uh, neighborhood trusts now they would need assets. What assets do distressed neighborhoods have, and how difficult is it for a distressed neighborhood to recognize it does have assets that can give the necessary resources to a neighborhood trust? Well, the assets in a distressed neighborhood—the most important asset in a distressed neighborhood—are the people. And I, I would have these conversations with folks about Olneyville and even folks in these nonprofits who were dedicated to these residents would say, you know, I think this is a great idea, Joe, but they're just not ready for that kind of, to give them that kind of power. Which is just another way of saying that they conceive the neighborhood as the problem rather than the solution. And that's the big mind shift that they've got to change. There is incredible wisdom and expertise not the kind that 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 you know gets recognized on a resume, but wisdom and expertise in these distressed neighborhoods that just exists everywhere, um, and that's the most important asset. It's it's not well tapped. There are also physical assets <clears throat> that are valuable, that are extremely valuable in these neighborhoods um, if you know where to find them. And then there are a great deal of resources. Not enough. I don't want to make it sound like there's enough. But there are resources that flow into the neighborhoods. It's just that they don't flow to the neighbors. They flow into the nonprofits. The nonprofits get the money. All the money that comes in from community development block grants from the federal government and from municipal governments and from foundations and philanthropies, they don't go to the neighborhood. They go to these nonprofits and community development corporations that ostensibly serve the neighborhood. Well, that money ought to be controlled by neighborhood residents, not for their private use, but for the in-trust for, uh, for other low-income residents. And then I think there are other sources that they should tap, which is the impact investment. There's trillions of dollars in impact investment looking for a home. And by impact investment, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I mean is these are folks whose investment model does not, they don't look for uh, making the most money, right? I mean, they're, they're not just dollars that are going to be put into Exxon to try to get as big as they can. That's the whole philosophy is um, a, a different investment model. And then I also believe that it ought to be funded by state and federal government and local. In a city like Chicago, you could fund it locally as well if the, if the, if the municipality were willing to do it, right? And so if you don't have the, the Burge torture scandal, paying out bazillions of dollars to the victims of uh, Burge and the other detectives who 
beat the crap out of people and then had to pay huge settlements after folks were exonerated. You could use that money to restore uh, and render permanently viable neighborhoods all over Chicago, right? So just let, let, that's what we really mean by defunding. Right? It's, it's not taking money away. It's putting money where it belongs and having the people who need it use it. Well, but that's a different conversation. No, well, you, you touch on it a little bit. So, and you've said you've written on uh, the war on crime. Uh, how poor of a term is, how bad of a term is defunding the police? Well, look, <laughs> I mean, I think it's just axiomatic that you ought to ask police to do what only they are qualified to do, right? I mean, don't ask them to do what they can't do or what someone else can do much better. And if you're going to ask them to do a different set of things, pay them to do what they do, not what they shouldn't do and not what other people can do better. Now, I don't know what you want to call that. You want to call that defunding? You want to call that redistribution? You want to call that efficiency? Everybody likes efficiency, right? So let's have the most efficient actor respond to this type of call. The most efficient actor frequently is not an armed police officer. So let's not call it defunding. Let's just call it municipal efficiency. Everybody likes municipal efficiency. Well, then what you'd end up doing is reallocating um, police resources or police funding right? because they're not the most efficient actor. That just strikes me as self-evident. Don't get hung up on the labels. If you really want to improve a neighborhood like Olneyville, like plenty of places in Chicago, um, fixing the police is it's one of the things that happened in Olneyville. Re repairing the police, shrinking the blue footprint, that is part of what made Olneyville a much more exciting. The Providence Police Department used to be rough. It used to be one of the most brutal, vastly more brutal on a per capita scale, vastly than Chicago ever was. Um, and it was a real impediment to um, having a place like Olney, Olneyville be viable. Well, the first thing that happened in the transformation of Olneyville was a shift in the mindset of the, Olney, of the Providence Police Department. And part of that was having different people do certain kinds of things. That is part of neighborhood well-being. And they don't call it defunding. And you know, if people don't want to call it that, I don't care what they call it. I like the idea of calling it municipal efficiency. Just become more efficient. And that will inevitably mean shrinking the blue footprint and empowering uh, neighborhood residents vastly more. It would seem that uh, neighborhood trusts would then be a challenge to philanthropies and what uh, past guests on our show, including Los Angeles homeless advocate Tracy Rosenthal, who was recently on, have called the nonprofit industrial sector, but not just not just uh, philanthropies in the nonprofit sector, but also it would seem it would be the, when it comes to neighborhood trusts, it would be a challenge to governments as well. So what is in it for governments? After all, many receive campaign funding from speculators, venture capitalists, and developers whose power and wealth would be challenged by neo or by neighborhood trusts. Sorry. So other than because it's the right thing to do for residents in distressed areas and citizens, how would elected political officials benefit? How would these philanthropies benefit from supporting neighborhood trusts? Well, look, the poor have always been a sufficiently large voting block to control the outcome of elections um, in cities. 
if they wanted to, they could demand. This is what I mean, why the, the, the problem is not simply democracy. The problem is power. If they wanted to, they could control the outcome of elections and, and force political leadership to be responsive to their demands. Um, but there is there has there has never been a concerted effort to empower. And I really mean empower the poor in this country. Uh, even in the beginning years of the war on poverty in the Johnson administration, the first tentative steps towards uh, the empowerment of the of the poor, when people started to see what that means, well, wait a second, you mean they're going to really demand a different way of organizing life? Oh, well, we can't have that. Well, then it was stripped from them. Uh, if it is, uh, if they become, I don't want to call them they, because um, they're not a they, they are us, um, a, a, an organized political force, uh, then lo and behold, politicians will follow. You also write that in one respect, the neighborhood trust is the next stage in a long history of neighborhood development. It vests ownership and control with neighborhood residents rather than with outsiders, creates local expertise while building social capital and neighborhood wealth, and protects long-term affordability. By aligning capital with the poor rather than against them, the trust corrects the flaws of neoliberalism and allows a distressed neighborhood to raise itself from precarity without paving the way for displacement. So neighborhood trust then would also contribute to neighborhood stability. However, home buyers would not be able to make a killing through gentrification when selling their homes. So why would home buyers value stability over profits? How could a homeowner benefit more from stability? Well, so this is getting back to what I say, what I was saying before about the difference between an individual and a communal outlook. Um, and if folks want to participate in a neighborhood trust, which which would, as I describe it, um, deprive them of the ability to sort of sell to the highest bidder if they own their home, um, it would be a disadvantage to some folks who are, are whose outlook is purely individual, whose outlook is purely individualistic. How can I make the most money out of this thing I have called my house? Well, you know. That's a, that's a smaller fraction, right? In, in, in most distressed neighborhoods, the overwhelming majority of people rent. Um, what you're trying to do is provide stability for them. Uh, there are a certain fraction of folks also who would, they don't wanna sell their house and move. They don't wanna cash in uh, and move. What they want is for this neighborhood, now that it's finally becoming safe and viable and it's no longer a food desert, and look, they fixed the sidewalks. And look, my kids can play in the street again without worrying about being run over. Um, they don't, they don't want to move. This is the house they've lived in for their parents lived in before them. Uh, that communal uh, contribution, that that participation in a neighborhood, in in a, you know, in a healthy, exciting neighborhood, uh, is enough attraction to 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 a lot of people. Uh, and that's what a neighborhood trust is designed to achieve, a healthy, viable, exciting neighborhood, again, that's sustainable, that's not going to be overrun. And if folks don't want it, if they say, no, this isn't for me, I want to, I want to cash in and move to the suburbs, fine, go and sin no more, but leave behind someone who wants to stay.
And you point out that some will argue that shared equity arrangements of the sort I have endorsed deprive low-income residents of what has historically been the surest path in this country to the accumulation of wealth, ownership of property. Because homeowners in a shared equity agreement do not own the plot of earth beneath them when they sell their homes, they miss out on the windfall that can result from dramatic increases in the value of land. Losing the chance for this individual wealth is no small thing. And I would add, especially for African-American homeowners, as you point out, who on average have more wealth in their home than any other asset. What would be the effect on African-American wealth within a neighborhood trust and therefore on African-American social mobility? Well, no, I would not. Um, so I'm not, the neighborhood trust doesn't socialize anybody's home. It doesn't take anybody's home away from them. Um, so anybody who owns their home now continues to own their home and can, and when I say own their home, you know, they, they, own, the, they own the house and they own the land underneath it. They can do what they want with it. They can sell it. They can, that's for them. I'm not talking about seizing anybody's property at all. Nothing like that. I'm just saying, let's say, for instance, there's a homeowner and they, they are living in a neighborhood where they're trying to establish a trust. They can choose to sell their home to the trust. After that, the next person who purchases it only purchases the, the physical structure, doesn't purchase the land underneath it. And that's how you preserve long-term affordability because they get it at a much lower rate. And when they sell, all they're really selling is the physical house above, which keeps it affordable. Um, the land, which is what grows in value, is owned by the trust. Um, so you're, you're not talking about replacing the uh, dollar value of anybody's home. I would definitely, I think that's illegal. You couldn't do that. And I wouldn't want to, even if you could. I mean, that's, that's wrong. I wouldn't do that. And you also you mentioned that the national refusal to provide and care for the most vulnerable among us is obscene. As we were just when we started this conversation, you were pointing this out, especially since it is neoliberalism that has made inequality worse and swelled the ranks of the working poor. Yet in today's political climate, the obscenity will not end anytime soon. As political scientist Sanford Schramm observed in his 2015 book, The Return of Ordinary Capitalism, as much as people have good reasons to wish away neoliberalism, it is the new normal and its pervasive influence must be taken into account in pushing for political change. Likewise, as Eric Levitz uh, recently argued in a review of uh, historian Adam Tooze's new book, Shutdown, even the pandemic, which has so plainly laid bare the lethal inadequacy of market fundamentalism, does not seem to have seriously weakened establishment attachment to neoliberal orthodoxy. In our neoliberal age, neighborhoods like Olneyville must do what they can to transform themselves. When solutions are at hand, there is no point in waiting for a savior that may never come. So would neighborhood trusts, what impact would they have on uh, neoliberalism? Would they strengthen or weaken? Would they condone or exacerbate uh, neoliberalism? No, what they would do is, I think they could exist alongside it. What you're doing is protecting a portion of uh, space uh, and resources from those depredations. And, and when I said in that portion of the, of the essay that you read, which is also in the book, um, that, you know, it's the, it's the game in town. What I was getting at is that we could use neoliberal mechanisms to fund neighborhood trusts, right? And we could use tax breaks, um, federal tax incentives, state and tax incentives uh, to fund these trusts. Well, uh, so, so that's turning neoliberalism 
into a source, into a, a, a font that will uh, help preserve these neighborhoods, right? And the alternative is just to smash it entirely and then and, and, and restore the idea of public housing. I'm all in favor of that. But in the meantime, if we're not gonna do that, we can use neoliberal tools like manipulations of the tax code to fund these entities, neighborhood trusts. And I think we should. One last question for you, Joseph. First of all, thank you so much for being on the show. This is absolutely fascinating writing. And I think that there's a lot of community activists who might be listening right now here in Chicago who will definitely want to pick up your book. Again, thanks for everything. Now get out. Can we restore neighborhoods without destroying them? And our guest today has been Joseph Margulies, the author of that book. One last question for you. And I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question you may hate to we may hate to ask you may hate to answer our audience might hate your response you write the neighborhood trust is the realization of a very old ambition the current nonprofit sector came into existence more than a half century ago with the dream of giving low-income residents local ownership and control of neighborhood resources but prior attempts have come to naught and in today's neoliberal age local ownership and control seem like a fantasy the goal of the neighborhood trust is to make that vision a reality. So President George W. Bush said that he believed in an ownership society. By his definition, such a society values personal responsibility, economic liberty, and the owning of property. How would a neighborhood trust provide more local ownership or access to more local ownership than Bush's more neoliberal ownership society grounded partly in the private ownership of property? It is the difference between individual ownership and communal ownership. It is the difference between every person for themselves and every community with itself. Uh, th- these are di- these are diametrically opposite outlooks, and we have gone so far overboard with our fetishization of individualism. Uh, a little bit of community is a good thing. Joseph, thank you so much for being on our show. This is an absolutely fascinating read, and I truly appreciate you being on. Thank you so much. Not at all. Thank you, Chuck. Take care, everybody. Take Be care. safe. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is Hell If That Conversation with Joseph on community improvement through neighborhood trusts, or as Joseph would say, neighborhood improvement through neighborhood trusts, was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, which is going to be this week on Friday, or go to thisishell.com and click on support. See all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to you for your support. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is... The right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? All right. So it looks like uh, Dan only read one response yesterday. Is that correct? Yeah, one or two. I can't remember. So the next one from Fabio AJ is 3D print Warhammer figures. (laughs) Okay. That needs a constitutional amendment. All right. (laughs) What hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? Steve C. says looting. Okay. I like that one. <laughs> Me too. Uh, Bradley R. says the right of the people to alter or abolish the government. 
That's only in the declaration. All right. Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. Jeff C. says the right to lube and dildos. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> we'll have to take that out for the WNUR broadcast, I believe. <laughs> I don't know what is or isn't appropriate these days. Who knows? Who knows anymore? Stingray P says the Warhammers also. I don't know if I'm missing something in the news about Warhammers. Yeah, we're going to have to look into that. (laughs) Sloan T says D's nuts. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. Cheryl W says to have sex just for fun. And she wants to emphasize that they're not even kidding. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, do you want me to keep going there? If still like three more. Uh, yeah. Why not? Let's go do the last three there. Okay. John T says polka. Everybody polka. <laughs> <laughs> to which the right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? Bruce B says witchcraft. All right. I'm with him on that. Uh, and Neil C says punching Nazis. <laughs> that should, that should be enshrined in the Constitution. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can direct message it to us via Twitter. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. We also got an email at Chuck at com from uh, Gillian M., who writes... Before anything else, I wanted to say how excited I was to hear last Monday's episode and your brief return and seemingly, hopefully, improving health to echo what it seems so many others are saying. I hope you are able to take as much time as you need to be able to prioritize your well-being in your return. And as I have yet another surgery coming up, uh, I don't even know when, late June, early July. I hope that next time I take a little bit more time because I don't think I took enough time this week, this time around. I'm going to say times six more times. Uh, Gillian M. also adds, I was going to keep procrastinating and just sending this email in my mind instead of external reality. Uh, but that doesn't really work. But then while listening through recent episodes, I heard the call out for artists to still make the original This Is Art opening date, and I figured if I wanted I wanted to toss my hat in the ring, I should actually type it out and send it sooner than later. So here's the email. I discovered This Is Hell a couple years back, part of the way through my undergrad uh, degrees. Ironically, I found it out of spite for the transparently elitist mentality that felt like the core of the curriculum for much of the art degree I was working on. And all the hyperproductive visual manifestations of capitalism were being trained to produce. If I recall, uh, it was the interview with Max Haven, H-A-I-V-E-N, and you can find all of our discussions with Max at our website, thisishell.com. It was uh, the interview with Max Haven on the financialization of art, which hooked me on your show. I was pretty desperate to hear perspectives outside of the market-driven ones, which were seemingly everywhere with the grind harder, longer, and with fewer boundaries in the hopes of getting into the right gallery mentalities baked into academic art. And that interview with Max ended up being a great jumping-off point for whatever spiteful bit of busy work I had to turn in at that time. 
But when I found that Max Haven interview, I had no idea how many amazing voices Hal had to offer on such a wide range of other perspectives here at our particular juncture of late-stage capitalism, failing white supremacist empires and environmental collapse. After listening to that episode, This Is Hell became my frequent companion for many late nights in the studio, as well as a necessary counterweight to some of the less critical discourses offered in the classroom. And I'm fairly convinced I could not have made it through my degrees if not for you all. And This Is Hell. I was somehow able to make it through both my sociology and art degrees and finally see that's the problem you're studying art while you're studying sociology and when you're doing those two things you might find a conflict i was somehow able to make it through both my sociology and art degrees and finally got to put it all on exhibition this past year and now i'm sitting here surrounded by all those art pieces i spent the last couple of years putting together the prettier ones have been able to see the light of day outside my house since but a couple of the more let's say hellish ones are a little harder to place in particular one of the last pieces i did is a frankenstein pig head involving the local chief of police here in asheville north carolina as well as joe biden donald trump and the generic porcine people serving under them as well as various artifacts of their destruction from protests and camp evictions here in asheville needless to say seems to make most folks at least somewhat uncomfortable and surprise surprise hasn't exactly seemed like the right fit for any of the seemingly endless still life or landscape art shows with, which permeate the art world in my little corner of North Carolina not to mention I think my roommates would appreciate not having to stare down at us in our living room for all that while all of that is to say when I heard the this is art show was still happening it seemed only fitting to reach out and offer my monstrous neoliberal creature as part of the show considering how much this is hell helped me create this and many other works in the first place let me know if it's something you would want to find its way into your show in chicago the other thing i wanted to share was two guest suggestions i am sharing these not only because i'm i found their works uh, incredibly powerful and compelling but also because admittedly as a trans person myself i see gender variants and transgender identities as ones which are not just some superfluous uh, identity politic but rather at the crossroads of numerous compounding systems of oppression and frequently without being pulled in as a part of the conversation on those systems aside from a footnote or brief aside here or there this has been foregrounded for me yet again with the abortion debate and how it has centered the debate on regulation and policing of bodies around primarily white, primarily cis women. Without even getting into the active and proposed legislation directed at regulating the bodies of trans people and trans children in regards to healthcare, sports, public visibility, etc., it has been a fascinating experience to watch trans folks on the ground in my community here in Asheville. Uh, Asheville, North Carolina, who have been and continue to provide community care, such as abortion doula work and connecting folks to resources for abortion, barely come up in the broader discourse over abortion access. As folks now 
not only at heightened risk for the potential implications of a forced pregnancy, but also being the ones doing the work to prevent that sort of thing, regardless of legal status. It feels like just one of many times I see folks from within the community going unheard in the broader conversation. And while neither of the works I am suggesting suggesting are related to trans identity and abortion, specifically, there are both works which explore trans identity within a broader socio-political framework, and I think could make for really valuable voices to hear in an interview on This Is Hell. You've already interviewed Marquise Bay once for their work Anarcho-Blackness. Actually, your interview was the first place I it was the first place I discovered their work so thank you for that and they just put out a new book black trans feminism which I think would be a great excuse to have Marquise back on the other person I would love to hear you interview is Eric a Stanley who came out with atmospheres of violence structuring antagonism and the trans queer ungovernable at the end of last year which is jammed full of Quite a few hellish analyses, many times overlooked or undiscussed when we blankly associate the trans-queer community's vision of liberation with corporate rainbow capitalism. If you've managed to even read this far, then thanks for the time, energy, and critical discourse you have been putting out into the airways for so long and for opening up that dialogue to random listeners like myself. So uh, first, Gillian, thank you for the very kind words about our show and the kind uh, words about my health and hopes that I'll be feeling better. They're truly appreciated. And uh, your writing about uh, trans politics is uh, very insightful. Thanks for reminding us that about Marquise's book, uh, the new, his, uh, their new book. Our plan was to have uh, Marquise on the show when the book was first published in March, but I was in the hospital instead of here doing the show. So again, thanks for reminding us about their new book. As for Eric Stanley, Eric was not on our possible guest list yet, but they are now, and we will see what we can do about having Eric on the show. And finally, yes, you know, all these people are saying that the word they, when it comes to uh, gender assignment, or whether it's or gender identity, whether it's him or her or they, people are thinking that this whole concept of using they as a personal pronoun is something that's new. Yesterday, I found out that in the Oxford English Dictionary, it says the first use of they as a singular pronoun is from 1345. Listeners, if you have a guest suggestion, send it to us. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally on air during the interview. Lindsay, do we know who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? We do. Tomorrow's guest is Adrian Shirk, author of Heaven is a Place on Earth, Searching for an American Utopia. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsay Gorey for producing. Really appreciate it, Lindsay. Fantastic job. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.